start. If you would open up your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 21. At long last, the ages of testing and probation and judgment are over, to which all God's people said, Amen. History and time have run their course, and the dispensation of the fullness of times has come as we enter into the pages of Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21 contains the climax of God's entire revelation of his purposes for all creation. The most fantastic and the most glorious chapters, I would say, probably of the entire Word of God are the two last chapters of the book of Revelation, which also, of course, are the two last chapters of the entire Word of God. Why is it that they are so fantastic? Well, it's because they open up for us something of the wonders of the endless ages of eternity which we, the redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, saints, will spend in a place called, what? Heaven. Beyond the tribulation period, as you can see in this chart up here, and beyond the millennial kingdom, which we talked about last week, there awaits a final reality. This is the thing that keeps us going, isn't it? The eternal state in the new heaven the new earth, and the wonderful place in Scripture called the New Jerusalem. Actually, do you know heaven is the New Jerusalem? We could really call heaven the New Jerusalem. It's one and the same term. So the last two chapters of Revelation are a strong reminder to us, something we need to keep in front of us at all times as we think about this world, that this world is not the ultimate end. We are just strangers passing on through, aren't we? There is a new world coming where God is in complete control. Now, there are many misconceptions which people have, including Christians, about heaven. Atheists claim that heaven is merely the illusion of a spiritually intoxicated people. The godless scientists, and you've seen this fellow before, dogmatically declares that heaven is nothing but sort of a medieval fancy. The philosopher claims that the Christian's idea of heaven is foolish, that it's just idiotic, appallingly idiotic, while the liberal theologian views heaven as a worn-out superstition. Some say that heaven is a state of mind. Some say that heaven is in the here and now, that this is the only heaven we'll ever know is right here on planet Earth. That would be a sad situation, wouldn't it, if that was true? Some say that it is the total absence of existence altogether. And some think of it kind of as an airy place of fluffy clouds. I think this is probably the predominant thought, that it's just a place of fluffy clouds and harps and angel wings. Even many born-again Christians have misconceived ideas about heaven. Hopefully, however, if any of us have had some misconceived ideas about this place called heaven or the New Jerusalem, we'll be able to correct those misconceptions with this lesson this morning because we are going to read and consider what the architect and the carpenter of heaven himself has to say about this place through his obedient servant, the Apostle John, as we look at chapter 21 today and, Lord willing, chapter 22 next week. Now, the one thing which I hope will become crystal clear to all of us, as we do study these last two chapters, is that the eternal state is not simply going to be a spiritual condition condition destitute of some specific locality. It's not, you know, pie in the sky out there somewhere. 
the new earth and the new heaven are going to be just as pre just as this present earth and our present atmospheric heaven they're going to be in fixed locations we are going to feel at much as ease and at home as we do in our own homes today even more so really because as i said before we're just citizens passing through here we're strangers in an alien land but there we're going to be finally at home heaven will contain much with which we are fondly familiar in this life except that everything of course will be perfectly beautiful perfectly holy and perfectly eternal but heaven is a place heaven is a literal place on the map of god it exists within the realm of the actual and it is not just made like this time magazine article sort of portrayed it's not just made of air and fluffy clouds heaven doesn't float around somewhere you know just out there in where we don't know in the in the in a dream world it's not a disney world type of a, a fantasy place and make believe it is a real physical and more stable more secure more permanent place than this earth which we presently know now in this lesson this morning here's our outline our lesson is entitled all things new we're going to consider seven subdivisions we're going to look first of all at the new heaven and the new earth and the new jerusalem as it descends from heaven then we'll talk about a number of new blessings that we'll enjoy in heaven then the new jerusalem is described for us you want to see get a peek into what heaven's going to look like that's what we have in verses 9 to 21 and then we'll talk lord willing if we have time about the new temple the new light and the new purity of our new home so let's begin by looking at verse 1 the new heaven and the new earth john says in revelation 21 verse 1 and i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea we see here now that this chapter begins with john telling us that he saw again with his own eyes if you ever want to make a study of how many times he says i saw you'd be amazed where he says and i saw and i saw he really wants to make sure we know that everything in this book he actually saw with his eyes he says he saw with his own eyes a new heaven and a new earth and he also says that he saw that the first heaven and the first earth not the second earth which eliminates the gap theory i won't get into that but any of you have ever heard about that the fact that he says he saw the first earth um uh, passed away and not the second that eliminates the gap theory okay um he says that he saw that they were passed away now although there is disagreement among bible scholars as to whether the old elements of this present earth this earth that you and i know which is the first earth and its atmospheric heaven if it will be just renewed some believe that it will just be renewed others say no it will be destroyed completely and an entirely new creation will be made a new heaven and a new earth there is disagreement among, among theologians about that however to me just the words the first heaven and the first earth were passed away seem to make it pretty clear that the old earth this one we know and heaven are not simply going to be renovated but that they are going to completely pass out of the picture they're going to pass away and god is going to usher in an entire new creation the teaching that the first earth this earth that we presently know and the heaven and heaven passing away this teaching or this doctrine is not at all a new teaching it's not a teaching which is found 
only here in the last couple chapters of the Bible. Christ himself had said back in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, he said, heaven and earth shall pass away. But my words shall not pass away. That was in 2435. And Peter even explained how this would happen when he wrote, But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Second Peter 3.10 So we find out how will the earth be destroyed? How will it pass away? By what? By fire. Now, in the previous lesson, last week's lesson on chapter 20, do you remember how we learned that God would send down uh, fire? Look at verse 9 of chapter 20. God would send down fire from heaven in order to devour the multitudes who were as the sand of the sea, as it said in verse 8, the multitudes of the millennial citizens who will join with the satanically influenced uh, leader of Gog and the Megagite people. In that final rebellion, the last rebellion this world will ever see, in order to try to remove the Lord Jesus from his throne. Well, so God sent down fire from heaven to devour all those people. And those heavenly thunderbolts will completely not only devour them, but I believe that this is also what we have. This is the time when the new, I mean the, the old earth, earth we know, and its atmospheric heavens are going to be burned up. Remember, we also read in verse 11 of that chapter that the earth and the heaven fled away from the glory of God's face. And when we put two and two together, when we put these two um, passages together, we can figure out that the fire God sent from heaven not only devoured the assembled armies, the evil armies, but the entire earth and the entire atmospheric heaven as well. So it will be at the end, then, of the literal 1,000-year kingdom of Christ on earth, called the Millennial Kingdom, will be at the end of that, and after that final rebellion by Satan, after he's loosed from the bottomless pit, that the first earth and the first heaven will be purged by fire. Now, as I've been saying, as I've been talking to you, the heaven here that is talked about, the heaven that will pass away, is not the third heaven. It's not the heaven where God has his residence. You may remember that we have talked about the fact that in the scripture there are three heavens. There is the atmospheric heaven around this planet, which is where, of course, the birds fly and where airplanes fly and where Satan is currently the prince of the power of the air. And then there is the stellar heaven, and of course that's where we have the, the planets and the solar systems and all the galaxies and the, and the 150 million, million, million stars of which we can only see 2,000 with our naked eye. That's the stellar heaven or the second heaven. And then the third heaven, of course, is where God dwells. And that's where the souls of all saints go now at the time of their deaths. The heaven, therefore, which will pass away at the same time that this earth passes away is going to be the atmospheric heaven, which is right around the earth. Now, why will God destroy the heavens along with this earth or the atmospheric heavens? Well, because they are contaminated with evil, just as this earth has been contaminated with evil for a long, long time. Satan and his emissaries 
are and they have been for thousands of years performing spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, as we're told in Ephesians 6.12. Therefore, after the final rebellion of Satan, God will completely destroy this earth which has been so defiled and so marred and so cursed by Satan's evil. And he will include the, the heavens around this earth because according to Job 15.15, 15, they are not clean in his sight. You see, he's going to bring his holy people and his holy city, New Jerusalem, onto his new earth. He doesn't want any evil, even you know where evil had once existed, to be there. So he's going to destroy everything. You know, the realm where Satan had ruled for so many thousands of years, the atmosphere and the earth where evil had also um, dwelled for thousands of years. So he's going to remove all that before he, he gives uh, his holy saints their, their permanent place of um, dwelling. And to guarantee that all this evil will be purged away, God is going to destroy, utterly destroy the earth and the heaven with fire. Nothing purges like fire. This makes sense, too, because do you, you realize that we're just sitting on a very thin crust, and inside this, this ball that we're sitting on is what? Fire. Yeah, and sometimes when that fire gets too close to the surface, what happens? We have eruptions called volcanoes, like Mount St. Helens. We're sitting literally on a time bomb. We're sitting on a, they say it's even like a lake of fire. Some people speculate that that's where the lake of fire is, is inside this earth. I don't know. I don't guess it could be because it goes on for eternity and this earth is going to be destroyed. And many, many um, Bible critics used to mock the fact that this earth would be destroyed by fire until the atom was split. And then when they discovered that we are sitting on a ball full of fire and then it didn't sound quite so ridiculous to them anymore. Well, anyway, I repeat, this is not a new teaching. Isaiah 66, 17 says this. And this is God speaking through Isaiah. He said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered. That's interesting, isn't it? When we're in the new heaven and the new earth, we won't even remember this old earth. So like I said before, don't get too attached to Sanford. You won't even remember it one day. <laughs> or Pinehurst. He says, the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. And also Psalm 102, verses 25-26 says this, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou, God, shall endure. Yea, all of them, speaking of this earth, shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shall thou change them, and they shall be changed. And then this same passage that I read is also repeated in the book of Hebrews. And Peter said this, he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, God's promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, I'm just giving you some of these scriptures again to demonstrate to you that this doctrine of the coming destruction of this earth and these heavens this is not something new. This is not a new teaching. It's been repeated many times in the scripture. Now you remember, of course you weren't there, I hope, that once there was a flood. Once in the days of Noah and his sons, the earth was renovated and it was purged clean by what? Fire? No, by, by a global flood. 
Well, the second time that the earth is going to be purged clean is going to be, as we just talked about, is going to be by fire because, of course, God promised he would never, ever do that to the earth again by water. So the first earth, we could say, was created and designed for man's probationary state. That's what we're on right now. This is, a, you know, this is all a matter of uh, probation. We're being tested, aren't we? Well, the new earth is going to be recreated and designed for man's perfected state. The new earth and the new heaven will be better than anything this current earth has ever known, including the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a wonderful place, wasn't it, according to the scripture? I know you weren't there, but we, we read. It was a wonderful, beautiful place. But even the Garden of Eden was not perfect because who was allowed to to get into it. Satan was permitted to enter, but in the new eternal state, Satan will never, ever, ever set foot, nor any evil whatsoever will never penetrate the new state. Now, while there, are, there will be numerous similarities between this earth that you and I know of and the new earth, for example, there will be cities, there will be residences, we'll live in, in homes, mansions, dwelling places, there will be walls and gates, there will be water and trees and songs, and we'll have thoughts and we'll praise and we'll sing. There's going to be a lot of things that we're familiar with in this world, yet there will, there will also be many new things. And one thing that will be new, as we're told at the end of verse 1 here, is that there will be no more sea. Did you know that this present earth is approximately 70% covered by sea? by oceans. And God has used, he had a purpose in these oceans. He has used these seas of the world to separate people. And this has been one of the greatest preventatives of many, many wars which this world would have seen in addition to the many wars we've already seen, but has prevented many, many others. God set the boundaries on the nations and the seas are part of those boundaries. Without them, if you can just um, try to imagine this, uh, without these seas, these oceans as boundaries, in a world where sin reigns and where Satan is the god of this world, many thousands of additional wars would have been fought. I don't imagine this country would, you know, have been the mighty nation that it was at all if there was no uh, division between us and the rest of the world by the seas. So seas in our world, and of course John, from where he was on that Isle of Patmos, you know what the sea meant to him, didn't it? Loneliness and separation, because there he was all by himself on that little island. But in our world, oceans, seas mean, they speak of separation. They speak of storms also, and they speak of danger. And none of these things will exist in the eternal state. In the new earth, all of the boundaries between people and nations will be eliminated because there will be perfect harmony between all people for all of eternity. Won't that be a wonderful new thing? Perfect harmony between all peoples. There will be no more separation of people because all people will be in one accord. There will be no, also no more storms, no more dangers of any kind at all. This picture, I'm putting it up for you to look at, but what's wrong with it? There's a lot, too much water here. I'm talking about the fact that there's no more season. They put, they put the earth on there, and it's got Africa just like it looks today and all that ocean. 
So shame on you, whoever drew that. <laughs> but anyway, just because there's not going to be any more sea doesn't mean that there's not going to be any water. Because down in verse 6, when we get to it, we'll read about the fountain of the water of life. Well, although John was impressed with the destruction of this earth, the first earth and the first heaven, and he was impressed with the creation of the new heaven, his impression was insignificant compared to what he saw next. His attention was immediately next directed to that which is really the central feature of this vision of the eternal state, and that is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. So let's look at new Jerusalem descending, part two of our outline for this. Let's look at verse two. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You notice this is the first time that John has mentioned his name since the very beginning, since chapter 1, first time that he mentions his name. Apparently, this scene that is before him now, and has John seen some pretty magnificent things? Yeah, I mean, unbelievable things, as we've seen through these chapters. But the scene before him right now was so infinitely and incredibly amazing that he was so overwhelmed. He just couldn't get over the fact that he, John, was actually seeing these things. So it's like he says, I, John, saw the holy city descending. The new earth with, with its surrounding atmospheric heavens has been completed. God has completed. He's made the new heaven. He's made the new earth. And then next, descending from God out of heaven, John sees the perfect, the beautiful perfection of the majestic city of God, which is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Nothing in this text here implies to us that this new Jerusalem, this place of heaven, this is our future abode, that this is created at this point in time. Now, the new earth and the new heaven are created at this point in time, after the millennial kingdom, right? We just read that in verse 1. But there's nothing in the text that suggests that the new Jerusalem was, is created at this same time. Rather, the language here seems to suggest that it has been in existence even prior, <clears throat> prior to this event. This is the literal, real place prepared by Christ himself. Remember how, what he told his disciples in John chapter 14? He said, I go to prepare a what? A place for you. This is also the city for which Abraham an Old Testament saint looked. It's the city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And as Paul wrote in Galatians 4.26, it is the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all. So this city, this new Jerusalem that he sees coming down, has is already been created. It's not created at the same time as the new heaven and the earth, new earth. It's the new Jerusalem also about which the author of Hebrews was speaking when he said this, for here, speaking of this earth, for here we have no continuing city. We saw that at the end of the last vile judgment. Remember, all the cities were destroyed except which one? Jerusalem. It's the only eternal city. He says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. What is that city we should be seeking to come? 
the new Jerusalem. This holy city, which the Lord Jesus went to prepare for his saints, will literally come down from heaven to earth. Christ has already, to this point in time, been preparing this place for 2,000 years, at least. Because it was 2,000 years ago, he told his disciples that he was leaving to go prepare a place for them. And if you think about that, in light of the fact that the creation of this earth, actually the creation of the universe as we know it, only took him how many days? Six days. I mean, he spoke everything that you and I see. All the beautiful flowers, all the beautiful different kinds of animals, and trees, and vegetation, and mountains, and valleys, and sunsets, and sunrises, and sea creatures, all of those, and you and I, everything in six days. Well, can you, and this is a pretty awesome place, even though it's sin-cursed. There's some magnificent places on this planet, aren't there? And if that only took him six days, can you imagine? No, you can't, because I can't either. How utterly magnificent and unimaginable the glories of this city, which he has been working on, and he's the carpenter, remember? The carpenter of Nazareth. He's been working on this for 2,000 years now. It's going to be absolutely awesome, beyond our wildest imagination. It is to this city, which is now in today, now in the third heaven, that the souls of all who die in Christ go to await his return, his second coming. If this new Jerusalem is brought out of the new heaven during the millennial kingdom, this is going to get a little complicated, so try to hang in there. If this is brought out of the new, uh, the third heaven, this city, like you see it here, during the thousand-year kingdom, it is possible that it is like a satellite city which stands suspended over this earth. This is called the chandelier theory because it kind of hangs over. Now, we don't know. We can't be dogmatic, but some Bible scholars say that it comes down at the same time as Christ's second coming and that during the thousand-year kingdom, the new, the new Jerusalem actually is suspended over the, Jeru the literal Jerusalem in Israel. And there the resurrected saints, you know, you and I will be there, all the resurrected saints, all the saints who have already died, will dwell there in the new Jerusalem, and yet we will help Christ judge the earth and we'll just transport back and forth from the new Jerusalem to this earth. See, this earth is prepared for physical bodies, right? So that's why they say, well, we'll probably be in the new Jerusalem because that's a city built for glorified bodies. And see, travel in a glorified body is no problem. It's just beam me up, Scotty, and away we go. <laughs> so, so that's what they, they speculate about that. Now, if that is true, then when God sends down that firebolt, as we read about in chapter 20, verse 9, to devour all the enemies at the end of the millennial kingdom, then God will just take the New Jerusalem back up before he destroys this earth and its atmosphere. And that would be now why when he's creating the new heaven and the new earth, John sees the new Jerusalem coming back down. Except this time, it won't just come back down and suspend over the earth. It will actually come all the way down and, and 
be here permanently because now the new earth will be prepared for a new city because all will be holy, all will be purified. Do you follow that? I hope so. If not, I can't even tell you. You can read the notes this time, can I? See Terry, she's taking great notes. <laughs> so it is, I saw you ring. You have to have shorthand. So it is the scene of the new Jerusalem then descending from heaven, which John is gazing upon here in verse 2. And she appears so lovely. I mean, this artist tried to capture something of the beauty, but it's, it's impossible to do really. But this city is so lovely that he, the best he can do in human terms, he thinks of the, the loveliest thing that he can think of on this earth, and what is that? A bride, a, a prepared bride adorned for her husband. Now, because there are scriptures to sufficiently support the fact that the Old Testament, as well as the tribulation saints and the millennial saints, will occupy this wonderful city, along with the church saints. We cannot say that the New Jerusalem is referred to as a bride simply because she is only going to consist of church saints. That would be a little self-centered, wouldn't it? She isn't, because there are, there are definitely scriptures that tell us that Old Testament saints and other saints will be there. You know, this is the city for which Abraham longed, right? And he is definitely an Old Testament saint. What John was saying was simply that this marvelous dwelling place had the beauty and it had the freshness and it had the purity of a bride who has prepared herself. I mean, they take a long time in preparing themselves, don't they? I mean, nothing is left undone from toenails to the top of the head. A bride really prepares herself and adorns herself for her marriage to her beloved husband. The city itself will contain the saints of all ages. And yet, because John is writing to, well, who? He is writing to the church, he does describe her as the bride of Christ, the church, the bride of the Lamb. Well, as John was beholding the vision, and here she is, the bride. As John was beholding the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, and primarily the beauty of the new Jerusalem, he heard for the 21st time, and 21 is a division of seven, isn't it? Three times seven. For the 21st time, he heard a great voice speaking from heaven. And this great voice spoke of new blessings. And so we march right on into our third, the third part of our outline, the new blessings. And we'll look at five of them. We're going to look at God's presence, griefs, absence, glorious water, a guaranteed inheritance, and the guilty are banished. But let's begin by looking at God's presence in verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. The heavenly great voice declares, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And there are going to be many wonderful and new blessings in heaven the new Jerusalem, blessings which we cannot now even imagine. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 2.9? I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We can't even begin to imagine what he's prepared for us. However, the most wonderful blessing of all is not going to be the streets of transparent gold. It's not going to be the gates of 
pearl or the jewels of the foundation, which we'll be looking at in a little while. The most wonderful blessing of all is going to be that we will experience God's presence. God himself will dwell or tabernacle with his people. He will fellowship with them throughout all of eternity. The citizens of the new Jerusalem will be his people, and he will be their God, and he will be with them always. You know, this was not even the situation in the Garden of Eden. I mean, Adam and Eve had great fellowship with God, but still God did not dwell with them always, did he? He would come down in the cool of the day, and he would walk with Adam. But by the fact that he came down, tells us he didn't dwell there permanently. And there was another time he tabernacled or dwelt with men, but that was a brief span of time, only lasted 33 years. But in the eternal state, the tabernacle of God is going to be with men permanently. He will dwell with them permanently. And did you know, I know you do, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be the only member of the Trinity who we will ever see with our eyes. He will be the one we will see dwelling with us forever. He is God. And this is what the prophetic meaning of his name, Emmanuel, means. God with us. So the greatest new blessing of the new Jerusalem on the new earth will be God's presence eternally. Another new blessing, which we find in verse 4, will be grief's absence. Let's look at that, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Since the time when Mother Eve first sinned, sorrow has been the rule of this world, hasn't it? It says in Job, the first book ever written in the Bible, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Yet, from the very beginning, God has promised that he would one day, someday, restore joy and peace to this world. Isaiah 25.8 says he will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. On the earth during the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom that we looked at last week, a wonderful time. I mean, it's going to be a great time. The curse on the earth will be removed, and yet there still will, there won't be a lot of death, but there still will be some death, right? We talked about that. However, in the eternal state, death will be totally a thing of the past. No more will there there be any graves to scar the surface of this earth. No more will there be any sad funerals to attend. No more tombstones to engrave. No more undertakers to pay. No more mortuaries. There won't be any need either for any hospitals or rehabilitation centers or nursing homes or hospice care or mental institutions. There won't be any prisons. There won't be a need for prisons. There won't be any sin. There won't be, just think about all the jobs that would be eliminated. There won't be any need for policemen or security guards. There won't be any broken homes. There won't, be, there won't be a need for lawyers. There won't be any broken hearts. 
And the Kleenex industry, just think about that, is just going to go entirely out of business because there's not going to be any more tears unless they are the tears of absolute unrestrained joy. It says, all things are to be made new. Isn't that wonderful to think about? No more tears of sadness. Well, let's look now at glorious water, another new blessing, verses 5 and 6. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Here we have God himself speaking from the throne of heaven, and John hears him say, Behold, I make all things new. God has planned for us an entirely new way of life that we cannot yet, in our finite brains and bodies, comprehend. We will enter into a dimension of life that is beyond beyond our ability now to understand. He says very simply, and he's true and faithful in everything he says, he says, all things will be made new. Not only will there be a new earth and a new heaven and a new Jerusalem, but if you remember back in Revelation 5, 9, there will also be a new song on our lips. He's going to give us a new song of praise. He's going to give us new names. Remember that? New little pet nicknames for each and every one of us that only he will know and we will know. And he is going to receive a new name. We learned that in chapter 19, verse 12. And we know, and everybody says yes to this one, we will also have new bodies, and we will have new homes, and new surroundings, and new perspectives on everything. I read Erwin Lutzer's book on eternity. He gave a very good thought. He said one reason maybe that we won't have any tears in heaven is because we will see everything from God's perspective And to see everything from his perspective does not involve sadness. We will understand it as he understands it and see that it's just and right and holy. We'll have new understanding. We'll have new attitudes. We'll have new wisdom. We'll have everything new. All things will be made new. New brain cells. (laughs) The eternal state in the new Jerusalem on the new earth will not just be a repair job of this old world. It's not going to be a major overhaul. It will be a brand new creation. Well, hearing this statement and contemplating it, poor old John, I remember he's in his 90s, surprised he didn't have a heart attack, but just contemplating this and hearing this voice from heaven saying this, he's probably just standing there with his jaw open, you know. And so God has to remind him to write. You see that in verse 5, he says, write, write, John, get with it, write. And he says, it reminds him there also that everything he's hearing is true and faithful. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with our lesson, but sort of it does. I just thought you would appreciate that. Can you read it? I'll read it for you. Two little old ladies sitting on the porch, and one says, I'm getting so old that all my friends in heaven will think I didn't make it. (laughs) I love that. All right, I think that many of us probably would enjoy the prospect of moving into a brand new home. Right, Sylvia? 
I think about this, and I'm going to add this to it. Especially if this home was already prepared perfectly, beautifully furnished, and decorated just precisely, exactly to our individual tastes. You know, whatever we are, country, eclectic, whatever. Just perfectly to our individual taste, with, or southwestern, <laughs> with everything to fit us, and everything in fine working order. You know one of the greatest things about heaven, what it's going to be? No second law of thermodynamics. No more will anything run down. No more will anything break. So everything in this home is in fine, continual working order. It's beautifully decorated, freshly painted, just exactly how you would want it. And you don't have to move a thing, Sylvia. I mean, everything's already there for you. Well, one day, we are going to move into not just a brand new home, but we're going to move into a brand new world. And God's word on this, take this home and meditate on it, his word on this is true and faithful. This is it. This is God speaking. Not me speaking. This is God speaking. This new world, this future home of ours, will put the beauty of this present world it will put the beauty of this present world to shame. We've got some magnificent beauty in this world, but yet it's going to put this world to shame. Christ, the Creator God, will pour, pour out in full abundance the unlimited power of His creative genius in this new world. And in case you didn't realize it, there is no end to His creative genius. You, you know that there are no two snowflakes even that are alike. There are no two fingerprints alike. If you've ever been to a large aquarium and seen the various sea creatures and their colors and to a zoo and just seen the magnificence of some of his creation, just think about an eternity with an unlimited, unlimited created God, creative God. I can't even spit it out. What he can make. Flowers that we just can't even begin to imagine. That will be, I mean, it's just awesome to think about. There will be no end to his creative genius in the eternal state. Voice from the throne of heaven then speaks and says, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And that is a reference to the work of God. It will be accomplished here. The, the, um, let me say that again. This is a reference to the work God will have accomplished from the beginning of his plan and purpose for human history to the initiation of this eternal state. So what he's saying here is all things are done. His whole purpose and plan from the very beginning, remember he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. All things that he has ever purposed and planned for human history are now finished. They are complete. And then we hear Christ introduce himself as the Omega, the Alpha and the Omega. Actually, this is God speaking here. Remember how Christ introduced himself back in chapter 1, verse 11? He said that he was the Alpha and the Omega, and now we have God speaking from his throne, saying that he is the Alpha and the Omega. So what can you conclude? Logically, they're one and the same. Christ and God are both the beginning and the end. They are both deity. Now, there have been three times in the scripture that we have heard the Lord Jesus say those words, it is done, 
It is finished. One was on the cross when atonement for sin was paid in full. One was at the end of the Battle of Armageddon when judgment on sin was irrevocable. And now we have here at the dawn of the eternal state when a new world order without the presence of sin ever is established. We again hear him say it is done three times. One for each member of the Trinity because they're all involved in this completed work. Now, at the end of verse 6, Christ makes a promise which he made long ago, a promise which the Apostle John was also privileged to record in the Gospel of John. Remember when the Lord was speaking to a certain Samaritan woman at Jacob's well? He had said to that woman, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. This water of life is symbolic of both the Holy Spirit and also eternal life, which is given to all them who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It will also be, so it's symbolic in one sense, but it also will be literal, sparkling, pure, and abundant water, which will flow freely from the beautiful river which will flow right through the holy city. We won't read about that until next week. It will actually flow from the very throne of Christ, this living water. The saints in glory in heaven, the saints in heaven will thirst after God. They will thirst after righteousness. And guess what? They will always be satisfied. So symbolically, this speaks of the complete satisfaction of the believer's condition in the eternal state. We will always be completely satisfied. We will be satisfied over and above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think. And this stands, of course, in stark contrast to the raging, unsatisfied, eternal thirst of those who are condemned by their own willful unbelief in the lake of fire. Well, in addition to the new blessings of God's presence and grief's absence and glorious water to drink, we also read that the saints of the eternal state, who are referred to in verse 7 as overcomers, that they are going to have a guaranteed inheritance. So let's look at that in verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You remember in our extended study last year of chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, we learned that Christ had given some uh, specific promises to the overcomers or the true believers of each church. Well, now what we have before us here in verse 7 is the eight and final promise given to the overcomer. And this one really encompasses all of the other ones that we read about because it says that the, in, the overcomer will inherit all things. Now, how can that be? How can we inherit all things? Well, it is because Christ himself is heir of all things. And therefore, those of us who are in Christ our joint heirs with him of all things. Peter said this, that we will receive an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. So this heir relationship 
is a wonderful thing. I mean, you don't have to worry about your inheritance down here, do you? You've got a wonderful guaranteed inheritance uh, for all things awaiting you in heaven. But this heir relationship is also a son relationship, which is the second thing promised to the overcomer in this verse where it says, and he shall be my son. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23 says, All things are yours, whether the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So our glorious, guaranteed inheritance will be everything. We are going to inherit everything, and God too. Now, can you beat that? You can't beat that. No way. All right, let's look at the last new blessing, and this is that the guilty will be banished in verse 8. It says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In contrast here to the wonderful guaranteed inheritance which belongs to the believers, the saints. The only thing which is guaranteed to the lost, those who are in that condition either due to unbelief or due to their unrepentant sins or due to fear. Notice it says the fearful. You know, a lot of people just plain don't get saved because of fear of man. What will somebody think? Or out of fear of persecution or ridicule or peer pressure. But the only thing that is guaranteed to these is that they will experience the second death. And the second death we talked about last week is eternal separation from God in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone forever and ever. God seems to have inserted verse 8 here in this one, you know, this happy chapter. He seems to insert this one verse in order to serve as a final warning to the reader of the book of Revelation that, uh, you know, it's still not too late to come to Christ. God always warns people. It's not his will that any, any should perish. And so here he's giving one, one more warning. Okay, let's move quickly. We're running out of time to the New Jerusalem described for us. And this is the longest section, but I'm going to try to cover it real quickly. Read with me verses 9 to 21. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he talked with me, and he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. 
12,000 furlongs, and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall was, the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Now, can you imagine trying to draw a picture of that? Magnificent. It says, John says here now that one of the seven angels, which carried one of the seven bowls of wrath, comes to John in order to show John the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, the last time John was told to come hither, well, remember the first time was to be called up into heaven. But the last time he was called to come up hither, it was to be shown the great city Babylon, the whore, the harlot. And he saw her being cast down with violence to disappear forever. Now he sees not the harlot, but the great holy city, the wife coming down, not being cast down in violence, but coming down in glory, not to disappear forever, but to endure forever. So the angel, we're told, carries John away in the spirit to be shown this magnificent city. And the first thing he describes for us about this city is her light. She is arrayed in the radiant glory of God himself, and her light is like a precious jasper stone, clear as crystal. We had this described for us back, I think it was chapter 4, when he saw God on the throne. He couldn't see God, but what did he see? He saw light, and he described it as a jasper and a sardius stone. So here we have the same kind of description. A jasper stone, clear as crystal. So the whole city will appear, and jasper we, um, is something like a diamond. There, you know, it's not real clear what it is exactly, but it's something like a clear diamond. Now, the whole city then will appear as a giant, transparent, bright, gleaming diamond. It will appear, I guess we could say, sort of as the wedding ring itself, the, the symbol of the betrothal and the wedding of the church to Christ. Also, we could think of it in terms of the wedding of Israel to Jehovah God as well. And then he talks about the gates in verses 12 and 13. John notices a great and high wall around the city, which has 12 gates. There's a couple of them right there. Now, there would be 12 going around the whole city. And each gate is identified with one of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is assuring us that the saints of Israel will be included. They will be residents of this heavenly city. And it's also going to serve as an eternal reminder that it was, first of all, through the Jews that we Gentiles entered into the holy city. 
right? And gates speak of entering into. And then attending each one of these 12 gates, we're told, will be one of God's holy angels. And this signifies to us that the holy angels will also be present in this city. Now the gates are symmetrically located with three in each of the four walls around the city. The city is a square, and there are three gates on each wall. Three in the east, three in the north, three in the south, and three in the west. This symbolizes that the gospel is for all men, you know, no matter where they came from. And the foundation in verse 14 tells us that just as the city has 12 gates, it also has 12 strong foundations. Here, if you count, there's 12 going down. And this is indeed, as Hebrews 11.10 says, it says, the city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. And on these foundations are written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And I don't know that you can see this, but this artist has got all the different names in different languages for John, and then for Matthew and Thomas, and all the way down, each Peter down here has uh, the, the names of the twelve apostles written on those twelve foundations. This is a testimony that those redeemed by the Lamb the church saints and the tribulation saints and the millennial saints will also dwell in the eternal city. It's also a constant reminder not only that we got into the city through the, the uh, Jews, the witness of the Jews, and the, they, they were the ones responsible for writing the Old Testament, right? See, above this gate is the name of Judah. But it will be a reminder, too, that our faith came through the 12 apostles who wrote the New Testament. Now, if you skip down to verses 19 and 20, they tell us a little bit more information about the foundations of this city. Each of the 12 foundations is built of one particular type of stone. And each one of these stones, if we had the time, we would see represent the glory of God in 12 different ways. The overall impression of this city is one of immense wealth. Well, after all, the one who built it owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? I mean, he can build it as wealthy as he wants to. But it speaks of immense wealth and immense magnificence beyond anything known in this world. Now, there is considerable uncertainty about the precise identity of some of these precious stones. But this is probably done on purpose by the Holy Spirit to kind of leave us with an air of mystery. And anticipation. The main purpose for John writing this is to impress upon us the indescribable glories and the awesome beauties of this holy city. I did want to read a, a description given by John Walverd in, uh, actually, it appears in Tim LaHaye's book, but he wrote this. He says, The various foundations are represented as layers built upon each other, each layer extending around all four cities of the city. Jasper, he says, is gold in appearance, but like clear glass in substance. Sapphire is a stone, stone similar to a diamond in hardness and blue in color. Then chalcedony, he says, is sky blue with other colors running through it. Emerald, of course, is a bright green color. Sardonyx is a red and white stone. Sardius is a common jewel of reddish color, also found in honey, honey color. And chrysolite is a transparent stone, golden in color. 
Barrel is sea green. Topaz is a yellow green and transparent. Chrysoprasis introduces another shade of green. Jacinth is a violet color, and amethyst is commonly purple. All right, then he says this. Though the precise colors of these stones in some cases are not certain, the general picture here described by John is one of unmistakably unmistakable beauty, designed to reflect the glory of God in a spectrum of brilliant color. The light of the city within, shining through these various colors in the foundation of the wall, topped by the wall itself, composed of the crystal clear jasper, forms a scene of dazzling beauty in keeping with the glory of God and the beauty of his holiness. The city is undoubtedly far more beautiful to the eye than anything man has ever been able to create, and it reflects not only the infinite wisdom and power of God, but also his grace is extended to the objects of his salvation. Remember, God is the light. Christ is going to be the light, and just imagine that light shining through all these transparent crystal uh, jewels. I mean, just magnificent. Well, then he talks about the size and the shape, just in case somebody might be curious and say, well, how big is this city going to be after all? Will it actually be able to hold the millions and millions of people who will be there? Now remember, there's going to be a lot of um, not only Old Testament saints, but church saints, and then we're going to have the tribulation saints, and we were told that John couldn't even count the number of them that got saved, and then the millennium, where people don't die, and they're going to repopulate this whole earth, and many of them will be saved. And who else is going to live there? The angels. So some people will say, well, is this city going to be big enough for everybody? So verse 16 tells us, <clears throat> first of all, that the city is in the shape of a square, and that all the sides are equal in length their length being 12,000 furlongs, which is 1,500 miles. Now, in case you haven't visualized this, this is a very, very big city. If you were to superimpose this city over the United States, its area would cover all the way from Canada in the north down to the Gulf of Mexico in the south and from the Atlantic Ocean in the east all the way to Colorado in the west. That's just the bottom uh, measurement of the city. So when God does something, God he does it in abundance, doesn't he? And then, furthermore, we're told in verse 16 that the height of the city is the same as the width and the length. So the city is really going to be in the shape of a gigantic cube, a big, huge cube. Now, some say it could be also a pyramid. I tend to go with the cube, although I can't be dogmatic. So, in other words, it's going to be... It's going to go 1,500 miles on every side. And this means that it's also going to go 1,500 miles up. Okay? Straight up. Now, just to give you an idea of what that means, most clouds are at a height of 7 miles. I checked this out this morning with my husband, and he's a pilot. Yes, most, of, most clouds are 7 miles above the earth. Airplanes fly, the, the big jets fly at 8 miles over the earth. Well, this city is going to go 1,500 miles up into the sky. 
And remember, our glorified bodies are not going to be limited by gravity or by electromagnetic forces. And therefore, it's going to be just as easy for us to travel vertically as it is for us to travel horizontally. Dr. Henry Morris, in his book called Biblical Cosmology and Modern Science, says this. He has calculated that there well might be some 20 billion men, women, and children from the human race who will be living in this eternal city. And accounting for the theory that at least 25% of the city will be used for the mansions or the dwelling places of the inhabitants, he says this still would leave each person with a space of one-third of a mile in all directions. So we're not going to be limited on space. Plus, really, remember, we're going to be outside of time and space in heaven. Then the angel measures the wall of the city in verse 17 and 18, and they're found to be 144 cubits. A cubit, remember, is 18 inches from your elbow to the top of your middle finger, and so that comes out to 72 yards. So the wall around us, now remember, the city is 1,500 miles high, and the wall is going to stand 216 feet. Now that's a little bit weird, isn't it? Because it's very, very small in comparison to the height of the city. However, what were walls built around cities for? Protection. And this city is not going to need any protection. So the wall is seemingly only for boundary and for beauty. There are gates to this city, which does imply going in and out. The city itself, remember, sits on the new earth. We're just talking about the city, the new Jerusalem. But what does the city sit on? the new earth. So the gates imply that we, as residents of the city, will be going in and out. We will also be going on the new earth as well. We'll have access to the earth. Now, although the dimension of the wall is interesting and the construction material of the wall is even more interesting, because verse 18 tells us that the entire wall is built of jasper. And as I said, the exact nature of this stone is not known, but apparently it is a fine, translucent, you can see through it, capable, it's a stone capable of different colors. Gold, radiant white, but also red and purple. The city itself is portrayed as being made of pure gold like clear glass. And poor John, I mean, can you imagine being in his sandals trying to describe all this? He is at such a loss for words because he's trying to use human language to describe something which transcends all human experience. And so he just keeps on using the word transparent. He just doesn't know how else. I mean, you can see through everything. And I think that the city is just purposely designed so that the glory of God can shine through everything. You know, no matter where somebody is, God's glory will shine through everything. Talk about living in a fishbowl. I think we're going to be living in a fishbowl so that we can, no matter where we are, we're going to be able to see God's glorious light. But we won't care about, you know, just being open. We have nothing to hide in the New Jerusalem. The pearly gates... Um, each gate, now the, this does not mean, where's that picture that I have? Did I already put it up? Yeah, here it is. This does not mean that the gates are going to be made of pearls, singular. Each gate is going to be one giant pearl. Can you imagine wearing that around your neck? 
Dr. John Phillips says this regarding the pearl gates. Now, this is interesting, so see if you can get what he's saying here. Quote, all other precious gems are metals or stones, but a pearl is a gem formed within the oyster, the only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound, and around that offending article which has penetrated and hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. The glory land is God's answer in Christ to wicked men who crucified heaven's beloved and put him to open shame. How like God it is to make the gates of the new Jerusalem of pearl. The saints, as they come and go, will be forever reminded as they pass the gates of glory that access to God's home is only because of Calvary. What gigantic suffering is symbolized by those gates of pearl. Throughout the endless ages, we shall be reminded by those pearly gates of the immensity of the sufferings of Christ. Those pearls hung eternally at the access roots to glory will remind us forever of one who hung upon a tree and whose answer to those who injured him was to invite them to share his home. End of quote. That's beautiful. Well, the second part of verse 21 tells us that there is just one street on there. There's the suffering there. It says that there is just one street of the city, singular, one street, and that it is made of, what? Pure gold, as transparent as glass. What do we use today in this world for streets? We use concrete and asphalt, black top. But in the holy city of God, we will literally walk upon metals that today we wear around our necks and on our fingers. Today they're so precious. You know, we wear them on our wrists. The street will be the beautiful sunshine color of the finest gold imaginable. But it's going to be translucent. So it means you can see through it again so the radiant light can penetrate through it. And bouncing off that golden street and off of those foundation stones, I mean, hmm, can't, again, just can't even imagine. But it is interesting to realize that as there is one way to heaven, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the life and the truth. As there's one way to heaven, there's only going to be one way in heaven. There's only going to be one street. Well, I'm not going to take the time to tell you about that. I figured we'd probably run out of time. But there is not going to be any temple. Uh, there won't be any more temple needed in heaven. Let me just read you the last verses and maybe make a comment as I read them, and then we'll close. This is a, well, The new temple will actually be the Lord, God, and the Lamb. It says in uh, verse 22, And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. No more need for a temple because Christ himself and God are the temple. And then verse 23, there's going to be a lot of other things that there won't be any more of. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. Why no more sun? Why no more moon? Because the light's going to come from the light of the world, the Lamb. 
For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. No more need to shut the gates for protection, for there shall be no night there. Kind of makes me sad because I like to sleep. We won't need rest in heaven, but I think I'm going to rest anyway just, you know, just to catch up. All right, then verse 26, And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. A lot to look forward to, isn't there? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which I hope you do. And if you don't, let's settle that today. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you placed this chapter in the Bible to give us some small semblance of an idea of what our future home in glory is going to be like. Although we admit, again, that our minds and even our imaginations are not able to begin to fathom the wonders that await us there. However... Lord, though there will be all things new and so many new and wonderful blessings awaiting us there, the greatest joy, I believe, that's going to capture our hearts for all of eternity is going to be the reality of setting our eyes on Jesus Christ and being in his presence forever, eternally. Because he did promise us that where he is, there we may be also. So if there is nothing else and no one else waiting for us in heaven but Christ alone, it would still be heaven because heaven is to be with him. Lord, we've had a, quite a picture of heaven this morning, and I know, I know absolutely how inadequately I have dealt with it, but I do pray that we have each had enough of a glimpse of the blessings of heaven and enough of a contrast with the torments of hell that we will either submit ourselves today to Christ's lordship if we have not already done so, or we will purify ourselves and make ourselves ready for his appearing knowing that all these things shall shortly come to pass. And most of all, Father, may we become more fervent witnesses to the lost around us. I pray that you would burden us with the reality of their terrible future if they do not come to know you in this life. Burden us so that we pray more persistently for them and that we sow seed, the seed of the word, constantly and continually until you call us to our permanent address in that holy, golden, transparent, wonderful city of your eternal presence. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.